we are continuing in our Rooted series, and our passage is John 18, 34 through 38. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Good morning. So as Caitlin said, my name is Noel Hakenen, and I'm from Lansing, Michigan. And when Nate asked me to come out here and to preach this weekend, I was excited for a couple reasons. Uh, the first is I've never been to Madison, and I know a lot of people have people talk about this as being a really cool city, and there's some folks from my church that have moved here and work here, and so I've always wanted to come to Madison, so I was just excited for that opportunity. And in fact, I spent the whole day yesterday doing as many Madison things as I could find. Uh, so I went to the farmer's market. Um, you people are really weird. Um, you walk counterclockwise in a circle around the Capitol. It is strange. So I got there, and I started walking clockwise, and I realized I was the only one. Like, the, it's like, I don't know, it's like a cult or something. I don't know. So I'm walking around the Capitol. So I got, I got in line. I walked with everybody else, ate some cheese, um, and then went into the Capitol because I was like, you could actually go into the Capitol here. That was strange. Uh, our Capitol has uh, like uh, metal detectors and stuff because someone tried to kidnap our governor last year. So uh, that was strange. But then it seemed just like being at home because uh, I'm from Lansing and we have what we call the Capitol to Campus Corridor where the Capitol is at the end of Michigan Avenue and Michigan State University is on the other side of that uh, Michigan Avenue. So walking State Street felt a lot like being at home. So then I grabbed lunch. I went out to, was it picnic? point. Um, got to hang out there, um, walked around campus. Hey, I got to see a very interesting uh, bike display that I hear happens the last, uh, yeah, the Saturday before Father's Day every year. I happen to be, for those of you who know what that is, if you don't, ask someone. There's kids in the room. But I was standing at the crosswalk ready to cross the street, and this parade of bikes went right in front of me. So I thought, Welcome to Madison. So, wonderful city. Um, the second reason I was excited uh, to be here is when Nate said that um, you guys were teaching through the Apostles' Creed, I'm like, oh, that would be so easy because just last fall, our church did a series through the Apostles' Creed. So, I'm like, great, I'll just be able to grab one of my sermons, easy peasy, and then he gave me the week, and it happened to week, be a week I wasn't preaching. Um, so, but it is also something foundational to our faith that we should all know uh, anyway. So, I was just super excited to be here. And here's the thing. I know I'm here to preach, but I want to just say uh, from an Acts 29 perspective, this church planning network that we're part of, we're just thrilled uh, that you are part of our network. And I love you guys because I love Nate um, and have heard about your church for years, um, even back when uh, it wasn't Nate here. Right? <laughs> just, um, so for years, it's been exciting to just kind of to hear from you. So it's fun to be here with you guys today. So what we're going to do 
is I'm going to start by having us recite the Apostles' Creed together, and we're going to use this as our opening prayer. And so we're going to do a couple things. I'm going to have you stand up, and it'll be on the screen, so if you don't have it memorized like I don't, uh, we can all read it together as our opening prayer. But I want you to listen to the Apostles' Creed as we go through it, and listen for names. That's what I want you to do. Just listen for names as we work our way through this. So would you stand with me, and let's recite and pray um, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice there aren't a lot of names in the Apostles' Creed. And that makes sense because really the Apostles' Creed is the core of the Christian faith. And so it obviously is going to center around the person and work of Jesus. And so Jesus is the one name that matters and he gets a lot of uh, the attention. God the Father is, is mentioned by title, by attribute. Uh, the Holy Spirit is only mentioned by name. But then there are a couple other names. Did you catch the other names? There's one that you covered last week, which was Mary. And then there's Pontius Pilate. And that's it. There are no other names in the Apostles' Creed. It's really strange that Pontius Pilate gets a shout out in the Apostles' Creed because Pontius Pilate was not a religious man. Uh, He was a Roman governor, and early historians tell us that Pontius Pilate was a violent man who completely disregarded um, any um, religious traditions, especially Jewish ones. In fact, at one point, um, Pilate had um, statues of the Roman emperor brought into Jerusalem, the Jewish holy, holy city, and set up all over the city. And then the Jews came to him and tried to negotiate him to get rid of the statues. And instead, he had his soldiers pull out their swords and threaten to cut the heads off anybody who would tell them that they had to remove the statues. And so the Jews all went, said, okay, and they got down on their hands and knees and exposed their neck and said, go for it. So he capitulated <laughs> removed the statues. And so some people think that that Pilate was wishy-washy, but I think he was politically expedient. He, He knew how to get what he wanted, and he knew the battles that he could win, and he knew the battles that he could lose. And so now we've got this guy, this Roman governor, shows up in the Apostles' Creed. Not only is that strange, but the line that we're covering today is the one that I would say that everybody agrees with. You don't even have to be a Christian to agree with this line because it's historic fact. This is the line we're covering today. I believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Almost every serious scholar, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist would say, yeah, I agree with that. (laughs) I believe Jesus suffered under this this governor Pontius Pilate. It's a historic fact. I I believe he was crucified. I believe he was died. I believe he was buried. Everybody agrees with that. So why is this line even in the Apostles' Creed? Let's find out. 
If you have your Bibles, uh, flip, tap, or swipe, however you do your Bible thing, over to John 18. And let's set the context of John 18 right here. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he was arrested, and he was brought to Pilate's compound. And Pilate's compound is where he lived and worked. So it had his office, it had barracks for up to 600 soldiers, and it had a little courthouse. And then outside of all of that, there was a large, massive courtyard area. And this is where the Jewish authorities brought Jesus after they arrested him. Now, here's the thing. They didn't want to go into Pilate's home, into the palace, because they believed that that would make them undefiled. It would make them ceremonial unclean, and that's going to be important in about 25 minutes. They believed it was going to make them unclean to go into the palace, so they stayed in the courtyard. So what happens is something that was actually, it would actually be hilarious if this whole thing wasn't so intense, because Pilate was inside his palace with Jesus, and then he would have to go outside and talk to the religious guys, and then go back in to talk to Jesus, and then back, so this guy is going back and forth and back and forth, having this conversation. The whole thing starts with him going to the religious leaders and saying, okay, you brought me this guy, what do you want me to do with him? Like, what did this guy do wrong? And the, ans- the non-answer they gave is actually hysterical. This is John 18, verse 30. It says this, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, would we, he would, we would not have delivered him over to you. Do you see how that's a non-answer? They're like, what did he do wrong? And they're like, bad stuff. Like, we wouldn't brought him if he wasn't evil and bad. Right? That's their answer to him. And so then Pilate says to them, appropriately, take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, now process this for a second. The religious leaders, they want Pilate um, to crucify Jesus, to put him to death, but they won't tell him what he did wrong. They're just, they just don't want to have anything to, to do with it. And so Pilate is outside, right? He's in the courtyard. So now he runs back into his palace and he says to Jesus a really weird question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? which is a really weird question. And Jesus' response is essentially, if I could summarize it, that's a really weird question. Look at this. Let's follow this through. We're going to read a whole chunk here and just listen to this interchange between Jesus and Pilate starting in verse 34. It says, Jesus answered him, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. (laughs) Now, remember, what what do we know about Pilate? He's a violent man. He's not afraid of putting anybody to death. He's also politically expedient, right? He doesn't care at all about the Jewish religion one bit. He was cruel. He wasn't afraid of violence. But so this conversation is odd because he goes to Jesus and says, are you a king? And Jesus is like, well, you say I'm a king. He's like, no, no, no. What's the problem with you and them? They won't tell you. Basically saying, what is the problem? I can't figure out what's going on between you and them. And Jesus is like, well, I'm a king of another world. And this is problematic for Pilate. 
Because now Jesus has just made himself out to be a threat, but there's something about Jesus that Pilate can't put his finger on. See, he's the guy who's political. He wants to work the political angles. And so, so he kind of just throws his hands up and says, what is truth, right? Like he's kind of exasperated by this conversation. He runs outside. He says to the guys, this, this guy is innocent. I can't figure this out. But then his political expediency kicks in because he knows they're not going to like the answer. So he gives the Jews a way out of this whole mess that they had created. Verse 39 that you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? See, he's not afraid about kind of poking the bear back right there. He said, and they cried out again, not this man, not Jesus, but Barabbas, and Barabbas was a robber. Now, John is putting that mildly, (laughs) because if you go to Mark's account, Mark describes him as a a murderer and an insurrectionist. He's a terrorist, right? And so that's who this Barabbas guy is. My son has a hat that says on it, um, it says, Free Barabbas. And he was wearing this hat out in our city, and some old dude walked up to him and, and just randomly walks up to him and says, Do you know what that hat means? And my son said, Yeah, I do. He said, Then why would you wear it? And my son said, because to be honest, I probably would have said the same thing as the Jews. And let's be honest, so would you. The truth of the matter is, we don't choose Jesus. We want to plant the flag of moral autonomy in our lives to do what we want. And if it comes down to Jesus or Barabbas, if we're real honest, we would have declared with them free Barabbas. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And then they came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And so what happens here is the Romans had perfected uh, torture as a way of controlling their empire through psychological warfare. And and they had all kinds of of ways. And there's kids in the room. I'm going to be a little delicate here, okay? So you have to read between the lines and some stuff. Um, There were three types of Roman floggings. Um, The first is when they expected that the person would be released. And they wanted to beat them up just enough that they had scars on their body that would remind them and everyone who saw the scars that they had been arrested and flogged for that thing. It was kind of meant to be a message to people. The second two types of floggings, both were for people who were intended to be crucified. The first one, the same whips that they would have used, they would have added some um, bone and rocks to it. And while they would flog somebody that would kind of tear up their skin and their flesh a little bit, but they intended for them to still go and be crucified. The third level was so bad using that same whip that usually people didn't survive it and they would just hang them on the cross later. All right, so you got all that? Now, we're not sure which one this is. And there's a little bit of debate between uh, uh, religious scholars and, and the different gospel accounts of whether there was one flogging or two flogging and which one it is. I think it's number one here in John, and I think the other gospel accounts show us another flogging that happens with Jesus that gets worse, but part of the reason I believe that is what's going on with Pilate. Because Pilate, I think he's trying to get a way out. I think what he's doing here is he is whipping Jesus with intention. 
He's trying to send a message that shows that he thinks that Jesus should be set free, but that he is flogging him, putting the sarcastic crown of thorns on his head. The Roman soldiers grabbed what was probably, I don't know, just like a purple rug or something or fabric and just threw it on him to mock him, make him look like the king. The whole point is to say, I've done what you wanted to do to this supposed king, and you should probably let him go. And at the end, it says the soldiers hit him with their hands. What we do know is that in Pilate's complex, there would have been up to 600 soldiers. Now, we don't know how many, but a number of these soldiers, anywhere from one to 600, came and punched Jesus and, and, and beat him up. And I think the whole thing is Pilate just saying, I beat him up against my own better judgment. <laughs> I think that you should let this guy go because he's done nothing wrong. And this is what it says, in, starting in verse 6, when the chief priests and the crucified officers saw him. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So what he does is after Jesus has been beat up, they drag him out of the inside of the palace, out to the courtyard so that the guys can see him. And they see him dressed up in this mockery and, and that just angers them even more. So they're like, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him. And I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And now we finally have the reason. It's there. They didn't want to tell Pilate because Pilate wouldn't care. Right? Pilate didn't care about religious stuff. He's like, he doesn't care that Jesus would call himself the son of God. But for them, if Jesus called himself the son of God, then that made Jesus out to be divine. And Jesus was calling himself God. And that to them was blasphemy. And they knew Pilate wasn't going to care. So they didn't want to tell Pilate. But they still wanted Pilate to, to do something about this. Now, this whole thing should not have bothered Pilate from what we know about him. But it did. Verse 8. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus. So he drags Jesus back inside again. And he says, where are you from? They see like something is going, there's something bigger happening here. Where are you from? Where is this kingdom that is of another world that you were telling me about? Like, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate is starting to freak out. He's gone from doubting that this is something that should even be his problem to really feeling like there's something bigger at hand that is happening, and he's beginning to panic. See, the Romans had a whole bunch of gods. And I wonder if he was starting to think, maybe this is one of them. Maybe this guy is a God. He's trying to sort it out. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you'll not speak to me? <laughs> Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Okay, <laughs> this is nuts. Jesus is saying, this is not your show. You're not in charge of this. Let's just stop there for a second. We live in a world of tremendous suffering and pain. As of this morning, I looked it up this morning, there have been 270 mass shootings in our country this year. There have been over 20,000 gun deaths more than half of them are suicides. And Saturday, I'm doing a funeral for one, a young man in our church. This is not a new problem, this pain and suffering. Today's Juneteenth. 
a day where we acknowledge the fact that it took two and a half years from the Emancipation Proclamation for slaves to finally be set free in our country. Two and a half years. And now you go back to Jesus' day in Roman. There was a time the Romans were crucifying so many people that there was a span of two to three months where they crucified 500 people a day. This world that we live in is filled with pain and suffering, and a valid question that my non-Christian friends ask me is, if there is a God, how can there be a powerful God in control of things when this sort of stuff happens? And what I tell my non-Christian friends is, may I suggest that there is no better option Because here's the options you got. Option A, there's no God, right? Everything that happens in this world is is meaningless and purposelessness, and we just have to figure out the meaning and purpose on our own, right? Nothing really matters in the grand scheme of things. We could live, we could die, um, we could tell our story, right? Um, That was a Hamilton joke. Apparently, you guys are not in a musical theater. Um, So that's fine. I'll forgive you for that, but it's also history. I'll also forgive you for that. Um, But That's the first option, that there's no God. The second option is that there's a God, um, but this God just lets stuff happen, and there's no meaning behind it, and he's kind of a sucky God, kind of a jerk God, right? Option three, there's a God. He just can't do anything about the evil in this world. It's kind of like the yin and yang thing that some of my friends believe, where there's equal good and evil in this world, and they kind of balance each other out, and so that sin and evil and all that in the world is just as powerful as good in this world. It kind of balances itself all out in the middle. These are the options you have. But then there's also the option of the God of the Bible, a God who has a plan and a purpose that we cannot wrap our head around because we're not him. That we can't comprehend what is happening. That, that, that there's a real God that, and, and that when we face pain and suffering in this world, we can have a little bit of comfort knowing that he is directing everything toward a plan and purpose that he has in mind, even if this side of glory, we never get to see it. Case in point, Pilate. Pilate says to Jesus, listen, don't you know that I have the authority to crucify you or to let you go? And Jesus says, listen, don't you know that you have no authority that hasn't been granted to you? In other words, the authority that you're exercising right now has been given to you by a higher authority. If we were there right now with all the knowledge that we have, we would be like, don't, just let Jesus go, right? If we were there without the knowledge we have now, we'd be like, let Jesus go, let him go, don't torture him anymore. But Jesus is like, that is not the bigger concern. You have authority that's been given to you by someone else, but I got to remind you, this ain't your show. (laughs) You're not in charge of this. And that is a gutsy thing to say to somebody who is the governor in his palace, who is a violent man, who is directing your faith. He, it, it's poking the bear. It's poking the violent bear. Right? So what does this violent bear say? Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's astonishing. 
It, it's no longer that Pilate had power to release Jesus. It was no longer that, that Pilate was wondering what was going on. It was no longer that Pilate had, had said, maybe this guy is a god. Now Pilate has gotten to a point where he is actively seeking to release Jesus. He's like, I, 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 this whole thing, this conversation Jesus just had with him about authority, the fact that he was under some other authority has got him panicking. This is remarkable. He not only believes that Jesus is not guilty, he believes something much, much bigger is going on. Unfortunately, the Jews had one more card to play. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release them, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king um, opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat him on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha, uh, um, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. So what is going on here? Well, Caesar, who is the king, is a guy named Tiberius. Tiberius was, uh, was both violent and insecure, and he had a group of people called the Friend of Caesar's. And if you showed that you had extreme loyalty to him, you could be a friend of Caesar's. Now, we have no evidence that Pilate was officially a friend of Caesar's, but any Roman would love to be a friend of Caesar's. And so if he could show that he had just killed a king that was coming to oppose Tiberius, he might be able to get into that inner circle. And if Tiberius found out that maybe he had the opportunity to kill a guy who was the king who might oppose him, that he might be like at risk. And so right now, that was enough. Pilate, all of his convictions, everything that he'd been wondering, everything that was going on in his mind, and when he talked to Jesus about authority, he went out the window because he's like, Tiberius might kill me over this. So now let me read a long chunk of what happens next. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them and Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Crucifixion was commonplace in Rome. Like I said, one time, two to three months, they crucified like 500 people a day, and they would line the streets of people who were crucified, and over the heads of the people was always their crimes. And so what would happen is it was, it was meant to be a psychological deterrent. You would walk around the city, you would see the signs, you'd read the signs, you'd say, this is what happened to this person because they did that thing, so therefore, I need to know not to do that thing. And Pilate just, that was his last thing. He's like, no, this guy's the king of the Jews, and I'm going to write it in three languages, so no matter who walks by from anyone who reads any of these three languages, they're going to know who this guy is. He is the king of the Jews. And he refused to change his sign. He's like, I am done with this thing. 
I also think he meant for it to be a message that would trickle back to Tiberius so that Tiberius would know that he had just executed um, a king. And so now we have King Jesus nailed to the cross with eight-inch spikes through his wrists and through his ankles, crown of thorns yanked down onto his head, and this cross, he would have been nailed to it and a hole would have been dug into the ground, and they would have picked up the cross and dropped it into the hole. And so imagine the spikes through your wrists and your feet and the jarring nature of landing in that hole. And then the asphyxiation. And when you lose your breath, you push up on the spikes, but then it hurts your feet, so then you drop on the spikes, and that's why people suffered as Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And then, flogged to shreds, crown of thorns on his head, he uttered these famous words in verse 30, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That word, it is finished, is the Greek word tetelestai, the word telos, means plan. It means design. And on the cross, Jesus said, I did it. I accomplish the designed plan. Don't miss this. The crucifixion of Jesus, him suffering under Pontius Pilate, dying, being buried, was plan A to save the world, and there was never a plan B. Jesus had to encounter Pontius Pilate. The religious leaders had to play the Tiberius card. Jesus had to die. But why? Again, my non-Christian friends, they're like, I don't, can't wrap my head around this. Like, why did Jesus have to die? Let me give you a quick parade of verses. <laughs> Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. From Genesis on in this book, we see that sin leads to death. It leads to physical death, spiritual death, emotional death, eternal death. And if God himself is eternal life, separation from him is eternal death. And the only death that could fully satisfy is the death of one who is eternal, who could pay the price, which is why we're told in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus' death was enough because his death was the death of death. Jesus was and is the sinless one. Jesus was and is the righteous one. So his one death covered over all the sins of all the world so that the author of Colossians could go on and write this. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, everything that you have ever done, any time that you have ever betrayed someone, any time that you have ever sinned against God or people, any time you have been sinned against, the sins that have been committed to you, all of those were nailed to Jesus on the cross. Death itself was nailed to Jesus on the cross, and that has always been the plan. That's why we can read again in Romans 4. 
that this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Oh, I'm skipping. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus has done it all. Now, there's only one thing left to do, and it was what Pilate was wrestling with, and is you're going to believe Jesus or not. Are you going to believe what the religious world may tell you, or are you going to believe Jesus? Are you going to believe what our culture tells you, or are you going to believe Jesus? That's the only thing left for you to do. There's nothing more. There's nothing more to be done to tell us It is finished. If you have believed in Jesus, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and, spoiler alert for next week, that he rose from the dead. You are made right with God. And you want to say something really cool in the story that sometimes gets skipped right over? Let me read the last couple verses of this chapter. Let's go back to John 19, 38. After these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took it away, and I took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is beautiful. Joseph and Nicodemus, Nick. They were part of the ruling council of the Jews. These guys were high-profile, high-powered Jewish leaders who secretly followed Jesus. And when they needed an ally, they secretly went to Pontius Pilate. And they asked him, can we take care of Jesus' body? And then these guys, these religious leaders, they did something that would make them ceremonially unclean. They touched a dead body. They tenderly took Jesus. They did what was considered in their culture a demeaning and gross and defiling act. The very thing that they as a group were afraid of in Pilate's palace, and now these high powerful Jewish men do this work because they worship a God that took everything that was gross and defiling onto himself to save the world. They worshiped a God that said the greatest love that you can have in this world is to lay down your life for your friends. And so I believe that work was a work of the proclamation of the gospel. As Christians, this is our posture in the world. When we face pain and suffering and sorrow, we acknowledge the role that we've played in it. That's called confession. And then we lay down our lives for others. We don't do this to gain salvation, to tell us die. It's already done. We do it uh, not as penance. Jesus has already paid the price. We do it to point to Jesus the Jesus that did not stay dead, 
But of course, again, I don't want to steal next week's sermon. But you know what's coming. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, ah, gosh, we, we thank you for the story of Pontius Pilate. We thank you that somehow in, in the midst of the chaos that must have surrounded the events of the crucifixion, we have this secular governor wrestling with whether he believed or not. We have two secret followers of Jesus who step forward and say, I do believe. And so we want to stand with them. We thank you that Jesus has accomplished it all, that there's nothing more that we need to do. Help us to believe in him. When we face stuff that we don't understand, help us to trust him. And we just pray at the same time, as it says in the Gospels, I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> we admit that we don't always believe. We thank you for the story. We thank you for Jesus. And we just pray that you would transform us from the inside out so we can be a giant blinking arrow pointing at him. We pray all this in his name. Amen.